let's get started. And uh, as, as some more people trickle in, that will be, that will be lovely. Um, we are starting a new Sunday School module today, six weeks, uh, called Who We Are. And what we're looking at here is, you guessed it, who we are. And by we, we mean us as Emmanuel Baptist Church. And uh, the, 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 the goal of this class is to explore um, where we as a church sit in the spectrum or the spread of, of global historic Christianity and what some of our beliefs uh, that might make us, uh, as a Baptist church, might make us distinctive are. And, and our, our goal here is to, uh, like I expressed briefly in, in, in the announcement I gave last week, our goal here is not to show how we're better than everybody else, but our goal is to show um, where we fit, because global Christianity, historic Christianity, over the past 2,000 years, there's, there's a lot of different emphases, there's a lot of different beliefs, and, and we as a church have a specific identity. And so what is that identity? What does that mean? And how do, how do we fit in with the, the, the bigger family? That's, that's what we're after here. Uh, some, some of the... Uh, sounds like we're getting that kind of robot issue again, Doug. Hey, so just wiggling the gain back and forth. Um, and if it, if it really doesn't work, then I'll switch over to a handheld mic here. Um, some of the, 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 the uh, desire behind this class comes from, the, from realizing that um, our church doesn't have the same... Uh, well, let, let me start that sentence over. Uh, our church these days is is in large part made up of people who have not necessarily been at our church for a very long time. So I'm curious, just even in this room here, if you've been a part of EBC, uh, you know, I'm just going to switch over to the handheld. I'll just, just switch over to this one. And then, Doug, do you remember the, the, the chords that I switched up there from the... Uh, Okay, I'll, I'll run back and do it. We're just going to take a little uh, a little technical break here. I'll be right back. Hey, that sounds a little better already. Okay. Uh, so just in this room here, if you've been a part of EBC for 10 years or more, can you raise your hand? Okay. So one, two, three, four. Five, uh, four people. Uh, five years or more, raise your hand. Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it, Maybe I'll go five to ten. That's sort of what I meant. What I meant by that, five to ten. Let's go uh, two to five. Okay, and one, uh, two years or less. Okay, yeah, there you go. Um, And so that that's pretty. 
uh, what's, what's going on here is a pretty good sample of, 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 of some of the dynamics we see in our larger church. And knowing that we have a greater per- percentage of people here that haven't, haven't been around for a really long time, uh, we've, we've felt uh, as elders the importance of us helping people understand who we are. So that's part of why we're doing that little segment in our, in our um, morning service. Now that's, that's also really just uh, strongly flowing out of uh, the catechism that we did and wanting to show how truth impacts practice, but it also is a way of, of giving an introduction to who we are, and that's part of the desire for this class as well. Now, now as I talk about how long you've been around or whatever, I want to make something really, really clear. Um, we're not a, a private club or an old boys club, and you have to be around for a really long time before you are like really in, okay? That, that's a, a really unhealthy dynamic that some churches have, and we want to work really hard to reject that dynamic. If you've been here for two months and yet you uh, you are on board with what we believe and and our, our practices and and so on uh, and and you make you know especially when that commitment gets made you're in right and so um, that that's part of the reason my membership is really important but but even beyond that um, we we don't want to segregate uh, but we do want to make sure that that we all have an understanding of, of who are we what's our identity what's our what are our core beliefs our distinctives where do we sit so about half this class is going to be history and the other half is going to be ideas so it's six weeks. About three of those weeks are going to be history. And, and because a part of understanding who we are is understanding where we sit in, in the big stream of, of church history. And then the other half is going to be looking at beliefs and distinctives and, and ideas. So uh, today I have about 1,500 years of church history I'm going to try to cover. And, and I really wish I, I, I could, could not do that and take multiple weeks, which I, I, I've taught a version of this class in another church before, and, and we took way more time, and, and even then we were rushing. Uh, but, but the idea with the history here is we're, today we're going to try to cover history up to the Reformation. Next week we're going to look at the history of the Baptist movement from the Reformation forward. And then in a subsequent week we're going to look at specifically the history of Emmanuel Baptist Church. So that's kind of the, the, the idea there. And then in addition to that we're going to look at uh, for over the course of two or three weeks... Uh, specific Baptist distinctives. What does it mean for us to be a Baptist church? What 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 do Baptists actually believe? What does that word mean? Um, do we just really like John the Baptist, or is is there more to that? And then we're going to look at some of the uh, yeah, and go a little bit more specific into that. And and for us as a church, what are some of the things that we as as Emmanuel Baptist Church in Nippon? What are some of the things that we really value? And and so that'll be what we look at in those weeks. So let's start with the really big question, though. Why? um, Oh, before I get there, just giving you an idea of the format of this class. uh, um, It is going to be largely a teaching type class. There's not going to be as much group time, just given the nature of the material. You know, group time when you're talking about history just doesn't work. Um, And yet I want you to feel free to ask questions at at any point. Stick up your hand and and ask questions. Uh, That will be easier if you don't sit so far away from me. So, you know, pro tip, pro tip for the weeks weeks ahead. I welcome you. I don't spit that much when I talk. Um, 
And uh, let's talk now about the big question, why does church history matter? Um, why should we care about history? Uh, and, and my answer is that uh, I have a pastoral concern for your faith. And uh, knowing history, knowing church history protects us from false teaching. Um, I remember one of the most important statements I heard on, on this, and actually in, in many ways uh, touches so many issues, was Albert Moeller years ago, I was at a conference, and he said, uh, he gave this advice to young pastors. He said, go through church history, find out who the good guys are, and stand with them. And that was such important advice to me um, in understanding that there are good guys all throughout church history. We need to know who they are, and we need to stand with them. We need to know that there's some things we're going to see different than them, but there's some things that, that we're going to actually really need to learn from them. Uh, and and that, that statement has helped me in, in so many ways. One of them is at times when I've been in the middle of a very confusing conflict and, and you're hearing so many voices in, in one direction and, and everyone around you seems to be thinking and doing one thing and you're thinking, am I going crazy here? Because I'm pretty sure this isn't right. But everybody around me seems to think that it is. And in times like that, church history has been like a lifeline to me as I've been able to go back and look at the good guys and say, no, this guy and this guy and this guy, these strong, stalwarts, these giants on whose shoulders we stand, they were all seeing this, and so I'm not crazy. Um, that's been one way that that's, that's helped me. Um, it also protects us, knowing church history protects us from the false teachers who want to misuse church history against us, okay? Pretty much every false teacher today who is trying to do their job uh, is, is going to try to say, well, I just believe what this guy from church history believed. That, you know, we, uh, bad guys, so to speak, try to use church history to bolster th their own ideas and their own positions. So we need to know a bit about church history to be able to, uh, to, be able to not be, be taken in by that. Uh, and church history helps us know our place. We're small. We're part of something really big. And, and, and we stand on the shoulders of giants. And so it's really important for us to get to know those giants. And, and, and it comes down to also understanding, this is another one of the most important statements someone's made to me in my life, was, was I was having coffee uh, with my friend Jay years ago, and we were both young, and we were both just getting excited about ministry, and he, and he looked at me over a cup of, of what wasn't really great coffee, but the conversation was good, and he said, he said, Chris, this is our moment in redemptive history. And just to realize that, yeah, like we are a part of church history today, and this is the moment that we get to have. And so that's, that's really important. So uh, where does church history start? Uh, op this is an open question. If you were to want to start the study of church history, where would you begin? Where, or if someone was to ask you, where should I get started with church history? Where would you, where would you point them to? Just shout it out. Yeah, the book of Acts, okay? The book of Acts is a book of church history. That's where church history begins. So that's also is, why is church history important? Well, God thinks so, because uh, it's recorded in, in the Bible. Um, and, and, and what's important about the book of Acts and, and the rest of the New Testament is that it busts one of the major myths in church history, which is that the further back you go, the better things are, the more pure things are. Have any of you ever been exposed to any sort of form of that myth that if you go further back in church history, well, that's when things were really good. 
And so, you know, like, think of the band Second Chapter of Acts. I'm sorry, Angela. I'm, sh- I'm sure their music's great. Angela likes the band better than I do. But, um, but think of, of, of this idea that, oh, what? We, just, we should be an Acts 2 church. That's kind of where that, that name comes from. Like, let's just be an Acts 2 church. Uh, there's no band called uh, Sixth Chapter of Acts, you know? Let's just establish some structure and get some deacons in there, you know? Like, no, no one seems to long for those days, which is, is really important because the book of Acts shows us that church history, the early history of the church, was messy. It was under development. You read Paul's letters, right? Like, we say, oh, we want to be a first century church. Really? You're like, you want to be like the churches in Galatia? You want to be f- like Corinth? Like, seriously? It was messy. It was really messy. Um, I have a friend uh, who's Eastern Orthodox. And one of the things the Eastern Orthodox say is that we haven't changed since the days of the apostles. Okay? Now, first of all, I'm, no offense to my friend, that is completely false. You can show it's completely false. The Eastern Orthodox Church today looks very different from the church of, in the times of the apostles. Um, but second, even if they were right, are you sure we want that? Like, are you sure we want to be like, again, pick, take your pick. Have any of you read Revelation chapters 1 and 2? Like, you've seen the letters written to these churches at the end of the first century? They were, like, almost without exception, really messed up. And, and I mean, you look at Ephesus, right? Like, just look at from all the time Paul spent there, and Timothy, and John, and, and, then, and then Jesus writes them that letter. And so... Revelation chapter 2 uh, is proof and that, that the further back you go in church history, we shouldn't expect things to get purer and purer. Uh, and so when someone tries to impress you with this quote, like, well, like the early church father said, blah, 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 um, I'm not saying you dismiss it, and we're going to talk about that in a moment, but we need to be wise and realize just because it's old doesn't mean it's good. Now, at the same time, just because it's old doesn't mean it's bad either, right? So we want to we wanna ha- be really balanced here. But the Bible busts the myth that the further back we go, the purer and purer it, it, it got. So what we want to talk about here for just a, a, a few minutes is, is the period of church history after the time of the apostles um, for those first few centuries. And does anyone know what the, the name for that period of church history is? Okay, so let's make some bullet points here. Uh, biblical church history... Um, and it's interesting, by the way, well, that's a rabbit trail. Okay, church is actually an Old Testament word, right? So church history actually begins with the Old Testament. Um, church is just means, is an Old Testament word for, for the gathered people of God. But I'm using it in its New Testament sense. Okay, so we got biblical church history, the, you know, the apostolic era. Uh, what's, the next, um, what's the next big section of church history? Anyone know what it is or what it's, or what it's called? Any suggestions? The patristic era. Yeah, that's right. Okay? So we're talking about the patristic era. There were patristic errors, but we're talking about the patristic era. What do you see here in this word patristic? Besides my messy handwriting, what do you see? What's this word come from? Pater. Pater. Father. Uh, So any of you ever heard of the church fathers? Okay? That's, that's That's this group of guys... Uh, from the time of the apostles up until the 5th to 7th centuries, depending on, on how you count it. Um, the fathers, uh, they seem strange to us, typically because we see pictures of them, and the pictures are like Eastern Orthodox icons. Okay, That's one reason why, <clears throat> why they feel a little foreign to us. 
Um, when you think of the church fathers or the patristics, which, which Christian or church traditions do you think of right away? What are the church traditions that really emphasize and love the fathers and the patristics? Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church. The Eastern Orthodox Church, huge, right? They're just like big on, on these guys. Um, everybody wants the church fathers to be on their team. Uh, and it comes from this idea that the old, further back you go, the, the better things are, okay? But um, <clears throat> uh, it, it, if you can get a, a, a quote from the fathers, you're good. But here's the thing. The good guys quote the fathers, too. Uh, the, the, the church fathers said all kinds of, of, of really great things. And, and so one of the myths I want to bust here is this myth that the church fathers were like this group, like a club, that all thought the same thing. Okay, the church fathers, or the patristic era, is an era that lasted for hundreds of years. And so asking a question like, well, what did the church fathers think about this? That's kind of like asking, um, what do modern Christians think about COVID vaccines? Okay, is it a straightforward answer? Of course not. Similarly, well, and even more, like, what do Christians, think about this, what do Christians from the time of the Reformation till now think about X? Like, all kinds of things? And that's the very same thing with the Church Fathers, okay? So it, I've had to read some of the Church Fathers in, in, um, in my seminary studies. It's, I had to read a whole book by, by uh, Basil um, on the Holy Spirit. And so it, it's been interesting to, to actually see some of this stuff in action. Um, the patristics disagreed with each other. There were some things in which they were confused. There were some things in which they did really well. And it's a whole spectrum in there. Um, they shouldn't, we shouldn't think that they have special authority just because they're old. Because what do we see by the end of the, of the apostolic era? Right? Think of how messed up those churches were. The church fathers came after that. So some people kind of have this idea that like the first century was really messed up and then as soon as the apostles left, we should really listen to everything these guys said. That just doesn't make sense to me. Okay? It's, we should expect confusion, but we should also expect some clarity. And it's, it's, it's a mix over the course of these several centuries. So we shouldn't think that they're authoritative just because they're old, but we also shouldn't ignore them just because they're old and seem foreign to us. These are our people. These were Christians trying to live out their faith and understand their faith as it was developing in, in this context. Um, Thomas Oden has, has uh, he's a, a Wesleyan scholar who's done a lot to try to uh, recover the church fathers and show how the church fathers actually aren't all that strange as we might think. So he did a little book, for example, called The Justification Reader, showing how what the church fathers believed about salvation and justification is basically what Luther and Calvin and the reformers thought. Because, and this is something we're going to see later on this morning, the reformers were all big into the church fathers, right? They, were, they saw themselves as part of just the same movement. Um, and so you might have, if you have a Catholic friend, they might say like, yeah, you think there was no church for 1,500 years until Martin Luther came along? Nobody thinks that. Of course there was a church in the, that time period. And they were right on some things, and they were, some of them were confused on other things. And this is whole big spread. One of the big developments in this time was the, the, the clarification of some key doctrines. Um, some of the key doctrines that were developed in this time was the deity of Christ. That came under big attack. Uh, you might have heard of the Arian controversy. 
the Arian controversy was this idea that Jesus was a created being. And so you had fathers, among the church fathers like Athanasius, uh, who was working really hard to defend this idea that Jesus was of the same essence of, of God, that he was not a created being, but had, had, was eternally begotten by the Father. We stand on Athanasius' shoulders today. Uh, this this, this uh, bishop from the middle of, 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 the, uh, of the patristic era, we, we are indebted to him. Uh, another big thing that was clarified in this time, so I'm just going to put deity of Christ here. You know what I mean by deity? It means that he's God. Okay, so deity of Christ was a major doctrine. Uh, also, the canon of Scripture. Uh, in this time, the, the canon of Scripture was clarified. Now, when, when I taught this in a more expanded format, I read a whole list of quotes from the fathers to, to, to show something really important, that the church fathers did not invent the Bible. Okay, this is another myth, right? That the church fathers, you know, uh, sat down at the Council of Nicaea and they're like, hmm, which books are going to be in the Bible? Uh, how about that one and that one and not that one and that one? And, and it, it's not that way at all. You can actually see it developing in, in, in their writings that they were recognizing what God had said through the apostles. They were not inventing, oh, we should put these books together. Rather, they were receiving and clarifying the fact that the writings of the apostles had authority and the writings of those associated with the apostles, like Luke and, and uh, James and so on, ha- had, had authority. Uh, Jude uh, would be another example of that. And, and they received and clarified um, that, that what, the, what, what 27 books were going to be in the New Testament. But we actually see really, really, really early, very early, them just recognizing that the writings of the apostles were to be received at the same level of Scripture. Uh, Irenaeus, uh, who died in, in, in the year 202, said this, We have learned from none others the plan of our salvation than from those through whom the gospel has come down to us, which they at one time did at one time proclaim in public and at a later period by the will of God handed down to us in the scriptures, right? So already at that age, they're they're seeing these New Testament writings were scriptures to be the ground and pillar of our faith. So you see, they recognize that this, that God isn't going to keep adding books, but there's this, there's this completed canon. Um, one of the big things we can learn from the church fathers, the, these are all positives, okay? Positives, positive is how to live under persecution. For the first 300 years or so, they lived under intense persecution. It wasn't constant. Uh, church history identifies about 10 major persecutions. But even when those persecutions weren't um, going on strong, these Christians lived where, in just a constant state where it could happen at any time. And basically, being a Christian meant that you were uh, at least going to be at an economic Disadvantage, like it was hard financially to be a Christian. You could lose your job, whatever. It was it was tough. So we need to understand that as all of this was developing, uh, that that th- these were people who were under intense pressure, and 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 many of them were very very faithful. Um, it's it's in this time period that they said themselves, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Now, there's some negatives in this time, and I'm going to just uh, I'm going to make some space for it here. There was what what I would see as some negative developments. Uh, a Catholic or an Orthodox person wouldn't necessarily agree with this, um, or, or some, in some other traditions. One is the development of bishops, okay? 
So the development of bishops is this idea that there would be one bishop who was sort of like the pastor of a city and all kinds of churches under him, and he was the pastor over those pastors, and he had authority. And, and so um, he was sort of like the Christian mayor of a town, so to speak. And then from there, it, it went out where you had bishops of, of influential cities that had authority over bishops in other cities, and, and, and you got this very hierarchical structure. Um, this, this developed, there, there was a big study done about this. This developed throughout the second and third centuries and the church developed a a structure that looked more like politics than than what we see in the bible i think this is a really negative development another one infant baptism this also develops in this time Uh, there is no clear reference to infant baptism before the end of the second century or the early third century and um and just, I'll be using this phrase a second century, just so you know, you always adjust it by one, okay? Because the, the, the zero to 99 is the first century, okay? And then the year 100 to 199 is the second century, okay? So when I say second century, you subtract one, I mean the 100s, okay? Just case that that that, that's helpful Um, and so it wasn't until the end of the 100s and the beginning of the 200s that we start to see evidence of of uh, of um, infant baptism and frankly even their understanding of baptism was was pretty messed up they thought it was this thing that sort of saved you uh, baptismal regeneration that that's how you got saved was by being baptized was very present in that time and uh, and and i think it's it's really um I think it's really unfortunate. And we'll uh, talk about that more when we talk about some of our Baptist distinctives. And then one of the other big ones was, uh, was government control over Christianity, okay? The, uh, the fourth century, um, or the 300s, was a really, really interesting century because at the beginning, um, I'm just gonna, I can't write and talk at the, uh, at the same time, so let's write government control. Uh, which is shorthand for a very complicated matter. But at the beginning of the 300s, you had one of the most intense persecutions that had ever happened. And by the end of the 300s, or the the 4th century, Christianity was officially recognized the, the emperors were Christians, and, and, or at least some of them were, and it was, it, it was like uh, a very powerful religion. Uh, a lot changed. Um, uh, anyone remember uh, the name of the guy who, who kind of made all that happen? Constantine, right? Now, Constantine, depending on who you talk to, is either a really good guy or a really bad guy. And as is often the case, I think he's probably neither. I think he he uh, was a product of his time. Some people question whether he ever really did come to faith, whether Christianity was just a helpful way for him to achieve his goals. But he was the emperor that recognized Christianity as the official religion. Uh, well, before that happened, he just recognized that Christianity was a religion. You were allowed to be a Christian. Okay. Now, here's the problem, though, is that, is that very shortly afterwards, uh, he began to, and the emperors, the Roman emperors, began to have a lot of control over Christianity. So do you know that it was Constantine who called the Council of Nicaea together and who decided on what the outcome would be? So the Council of Nicaea was the, was the council where they were really hashing out, was Jesus God or is Jesus a created being? 
the Roman emperor called that, that council together, and he decided the outcome, and the empire, with all of its military and political might, enforced the outcomes. In fact, the, there's these seven ecumenical councils where all the church came together to decide some really big issues. Every one of them, by, by one source, every one of them was called by a Roman emperor. And the, and the dictates were enforced by Roman emperor. So that doesn't mean they're necessarily wrong, but it does mean that there's this really dangerous interplay between church and state in this whole time. And this helped uh, lead to the Middle Ages. So we're now kind of shifting out of the patristic era into the Middle Ages and the establishing of the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, before we do that, I know I'm moving through quickly here because, like I said, we had we have 1,500 years to do in 45 minutes. Um, but any any questions before we move on to just to shout them out? Um, uh, any questions about this before we move on to the Middle Ages? These are really broad strokes we're painting here. Okay, not a lot of detail, uh, but we're just painting the broad strokes. Okay, some really important things happened in, uh, in the time period after Constantine, and there's a lot of detail. My kids have been learning about it and watching little YouTube videos and stuff, and it, it, it's just fascinating. But basically what happened was the Roman Empire shifted, uh, and it went back and forth, but it shifted its seat of power to the city of Byzantium, which came to be known as what? Named after, named after this, this emperor who made it happen. It came to be known as Constantinople after Constantine. Right? Cities were named like Caesarea, named after Caesar. Right? They named cities after themselves. Alexandria after Alexander. Um, because otherwise, how are people going to remember them? So um, the, the, the weight of balance in the Roman Empire shifted to the east. That left a power vacuum. I mean, Rome, it was called the Eternal City. It had been like the center of the world for centuries. And all of a sudden, it's sort of not anymore. And people were used to this, this powerful person being there. And that power vacuum began to be filled by the Bishop of Rome. And... In this time, now again, painting with broad strokes here, I've, there's so much detail that we could talk about here. But the Roman bishop began to assert himself as being powerful, and in fact, the most powerful bishop in the church, because he claimed he descended from Peter. So they, they, they came up with this idea that Peter was the first pope. Now, it's interesting. There was a time where all of the, the, um, all of the bishops were known by some of these names, but eventually these names began to just be with the Bishop of Rome. And the Bishop of Rome said, no, Peter is the first Bishop of Rome. He was the first Pope, and I'm descended from him. Um, just, do you think Peter knew that he was the first Bishop of Rome? <laughs> now, only a Baptist would laugh at that, right? I mean, no, maybe not only a Baptist, but like, so we think this is silly and that they reverse engineered this. And I think that's true. I think you can demonstrate this historically. There's, there's no, like, they're just sort of making this up. So the Bishop of Rome was the most important bishop. And then when the Roman Empire collapsed entirely, well, then the Bishop of Rome had, had a lot of power and became very powerful. And you have this overlap between, between power uh, and, and religion. And this helped uh, create, there was a big east-west split in the year 1054, where the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox Churches split. Can't talk more about that. 
But just listen to this. In the year 445, the Roman emperor said that the bishop of Rome was more important than the other bishops. 445. The Roman emperor said, bishop of Rome has primacy over the other bishops. By the year 800, the pope, the bishop of Rome, was crowning the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, Charlemagne. So you see how that flipped around? 445, the emperor says, yeah, you're the most important. A few hundred years later, the, the bishop of Rome, the pope, says, I'm now going to, I crown the emperor and actually made a decree that no one could be the emperor apart from the bishop of Rome crowning him as emperor. And so, um, man, there's this great book. I mean, well, it depends how you think about great books. It's called Vicars of Christ. And it's about the whole history of the papacy, the, 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 the office of the Pope. And it's just, it's so fascinating how all of this developed and really, really actually uh, discouraging. Because by the time we get into the Middle Ages, the church had become the, the Roman Catholic Church. So we're, we're going to focus on the West here. We could go to the East, but just think about the West. The Roman Catholic Church was the most powerful institution on earth. They crowned emperors. They, they, were, they were the very powerful political force. This was what happened with the, with the Crusades. You had a politicized church fighting against politicized Islam. Um, in this time period, the church was, was very corrupt. Uh, there were times where there were multiple popes because there was disagreements. The popes had mistresses and children all over the place. Everybody knew it. it, was, it the pope's court was, was, was just corrupt. Uh, Rome was filled with brothels that the priests visited. Like It, 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 was, it, was, a, it was pretty gross what, what went on. Um, but one of the most important things to understand throughout the Middle Ages, which we're really briefly touching on here, is that life, just life for the average person, life was short and hard. And people died all the time. No one lived long. People died. Think you had the bubonic plague just wiping people out. You had wars, constant wars, 100-year wars, right? Like think of all the, all the, the conflict that went on. Life was hard and short. People knew that they could die at any point. And you think about that, that, little, that little rhyme. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And if I die before I wake, how many of you seriously are concerned about dying in the night? Okay? These days, no, we'll call 911 if something goes wrong. Okay? During the Middle Ages, there, there was no 911. There was no medicine. They didn't understand what germs were. All of this kind of stuff. And so people lived with, under the constant threat of death with this very religious view that at any point they could see God and be held accountable for their sins. And, and so they lived with this sense of guilt and the, the threat of seeing God and they were all illiterate, so they couldn't read the Bible for themselves. And, and the fact is that the church, the Roman church, really used this to their advantage. They, they played on people's guilt for the, for the sake of their own power. And so that leads us very briefly here to talk about the Reformation. We're not going to get done my material for today. And so uh, just so you know, we've we, you know, we got about seven minutes. We'll, we'll cut off and, and we'll pick it up uh, next week. Uh, when did the Reformation start? It's a trick question, right? Officially, what, what's sort of the official time, start date for the Reformation? October 31st, 1517, which is the date that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle door of, of the, the college church in Wittenberg. Um, and 
uh, and that's when historians will say that's where it began. But of course, any historians will also say, no, 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 it began, it began a lot sooner than that. The pre-Reformation started in the 12th century. As, as groups of Christians started to look around at the church, and they were, with, they were part of the church, okay? So here's, this is something important. Uh, not every person in the Roman church in that era was equally bad, okay? The, the leadership was very often completely corrupt. We're going to see lots of examples of that. But but there were there were many godly people who, who were a part of things, and there were people who were saying like this isn't right. We got to change this. This isn't right. So you had these pre-reformers, uh, John Wycliffe in the 1300s, a pre-reformer, key pre-reformer, John Hus in the 1400s. Okay, also really strongly planting the seeds of the Reformation, the authority of Scripture, and so on. Um, but but the, the Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church, very successfully stamped all of these out uh, until Luther. Luther was born in 1493. Um, any of you ever seen the movie starring Joseph Fiennes called Luther? Came out in 2003. Okay, it's it's really good. Uh, it's pretty realistic, you know. R- screen it before you watch it with your kids. Um, it, it's 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 actually pretty good introduction to him, and it doesn't whitewash over his some of his weaknesses. Um, somewhere between 1508 and 1517, Luther had his tower experience, where he came to understand the gospel. He was a man who was racked with guilt. He had a really sensitive conscience. He would go and confess things for hours to his, his, uh, his superior in the monastery where he was. And, and yet it, somewhere in between 1508 and 1517, he came to understand the gospel that God well, I'm just going to read, read this to you because it's so good. He wrote this years later. Uh, Though I lived as a monk without reproach, I felt that I was a sinner before God with an extremely disturbed conscience. I could not believe that he was placated by my satisfaction. I did not love. Yes, I hated the righteous God who punishes sinners. Thus I raged with a fierce and troubled conscience. Nevertheless, now he's talking here about, about Romans 1, which talks about the righteousness of God revealed for those who believe in he, he he wanted to know what that meant. He says, nevertheless, I beat importunately upon Paul at that place, most ardently desiring to know what St. Paul wanted. You see him like with his Bible being like, what do you mean, Paul? What do you mean? Because no one around here knows what you mean. At last, by the mercy of God, meditating day and night, I gave heed to the context of the words, namely, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, as it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. There I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that by which the righteous lives by a gift of God, namely, by faith. And this is the meaning The righteousness of God is revealed by the gospel, namely the passive righteousness with which merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, he who through faith is righteous shall live. Here I felt I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. There a totally other face of the entire scripture showed itself to me. I would say that was when Luther was born again, when he came to understand that we are counted righteous by faith. That was, that was the, the, the truth that broke in and transformed him. And Luther saw that so clearly. He did not see everything equally as clearly, but that he saw very, very clearly. And, um, and so uh, 
now let's talk a little bit about about where about Luther and how this came uh, to show itself on the world stage. Um, in this time period, Pope Leo X wanted to build St. Peter's Basilica. Okay, St. Peter's Basilica, is, is, you see it today, it's where the Pope does his stuff. Beautiful building. He wanted to build it. But he didn't want to spend his own money. He, he, and he didn't have enough money. So what he allowed was an indulgence for those who contributed to building it. So an indulgence is something that, that the Roman Catholic Church practiced a lot in this time period where they would say, uh, if you pay a certain amount of money, you or one of your relatives can get out of purgatory. Okay, Because there's this idea that when you die, you don't go straight to heaven. You go to this period where God purifies you to get you ready for heaven, called purgatory, which is like not a fun place. It's fire and you get purified there. And, and your family was in purgatory if they weren't righteous enough. But in heaven, there's this treasury of merit because Mary and the saints had way more righteousness than they knew what to do with. And so it's there in heaven and it can get applied to your account to get you out of purgatory. And the way that, that, that we can make that happen, this is what the church taught, is, is if you pay us some money, then we'll do this transfer. And so there's actually this phrase, as soon as a, a coin in the coffer uh, rings, a soul from purgatory springs. Okay, now that sounds like you've got to be kidding me. No, this is actually what they taught and still officially believe. Um, I've got some Catholic friends. But my, my dad's family is all Catholic. Um, I'm not anti-Catholic in the sense that these are all terrible people. But the teaching of the church is, is, is horrible. Okay, it's, 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 it's false. And we just, we, I, I don't apologize for that. Um, so it even gets more complicated than that. Let me, just to give you a picture of the corruption in the church at this time, there is this powerful man, Albert of Brandenburg, and he wanted to become the Archbishop of, of, of Mainz, which was a, a, big, a big diocese. And the way that you became an Archbishop at that time was by paying the church a big chunk of money. So he wanted to pay the church a chunk of money to become uh, Archbishop of Mainz. And so he, t- he needed this money, so he took out a loan from the imperial bankers so he could become Archbishop of Mainz. And now now he needed to get his money back. So he hired what, a guy named John Tetzel, who is basically like an early televangelist. And so he hired John Tetzel to go around and to get his money back by selling indulgences. Okay, so you see how corrupt it was? Playing on people's sense of guilt that your family's burning in purgatory and just a, a coin they can get them out. And yet it was all in this background to pay for buildings and pay for offices. It was so corrupt. So, John Tetzel was going around to villages, setting up shop and selling indulgences. Now, the prince of Luther, Martin Luther's area didn't like this and said, John Tetzel, you can't come in here. But people from Luther's area, where Luther was a pastor, were traveling to go to this guy. Kind of like people today traveling to go see a faith healer. Oh, he said if I give him a thousand bucks, then I'll, you know, get better. Okay, same, same thing. There's nothing new under the sun traveling to Tetzel, and, and, and this was really where Luther's struggle was. It was pastoral. He cared about these people and that they were being deceived. And so he wrote up 95 theses on indulgences, basically saying this whole thing with indulgences is wrong. Now at this point, Luther was still a Roman Catholic. He didn't want to leave the church. 
in the, in, in the 95 Theses, he says really nice things about the Pope, who he thought, surely, Pope, you must not agree with this, right? And he nailed it up on the castle church door. Now, uh, I said college church a little bit ago, I was castle church. Now, here's what we need to understand. Uh, I had a church I went to previously. We had a guy come one day and tape up 95 Theses on our door, okay? That's not what this was. Wittenberg was a, was a university town. The, 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 and the door of the church was where you'd put notices that you wanted to have a debate about a topic. So Luther wasn't trying to be Luther. Okay, this is important. Some like, I'm going to be a Luther. Well, yeah, Luther wasn't a Luther. He, he wanted to have a debate among his fellow scholars. Just, guys, we should talk about this. And that's it's kind of like the bulletin board, the town bulletin board. So why did the Reformation start from that? Why, if there had been previous generations of guys trying to blow the whistle on these things, what was different about Luther? Do you want to know the answer? Technology. So remember we talked in the tech class about God has used technology? The answer is the printing press. Because some guy went to the, the, the board. I mean, there's some guesses here. We don't know exactly, but here's a rough guess of what happened. Read Luther's 95 Theses and said, Man, this is good stuff. Other people got to read this. Put it on his printing press, and within two weeks, all of Germany had read the document. Okay? That's not what Luther intended to happen. But within two weeks, everyone's saying, this guy's right. And it started a firestorm. Um, within two months, all of Europe had read it. Never before had this kind of mass communication been possible because the, the printing press didn't exist. By 1530, over 10,000 different publications with a total of 10 million copies had flooded Europe. Luther wrote in the German language for people to read in their own language and, and so he could not be snuffed out. And with that, we're going to end here, guys, and we're going to pick up next week talking about the doctrines of the Reformation, and, and then flowing on from there and uh, into the Baptist movement. So, um, didn't have time for questions, but if you got any, send me an email, and I'll do my best to answer them, either in the email or publicly in class. But I'm looking forward to this journey together. This is important stuff, and I'm glad we're doing this. So, thank you.